From PRI, Public Radio International. You left out a very important word. In fact, you forgot two very important words. The two little magic words. Magic words? What are they? Well, I'll tell you. There are two little magic words that can open any door with these. One little word is... Thanks. And the other little word is... Please. Parents often say to the kids, what do you say? Right? And the kids, thank you. Like, that's the routine. We say thank you is in a kind of offhand way. And when someone, like, leans into you and with great sincerity says, thank you, you know it. <laughs> you know that, that they really meant it. We say thank you automatically. It's one of the first phrases we teach our children. But sometimes thanks is so automatic, we don't consider what gratitude really means. Hi, I'm Susan Sarandon. It's the science of gratitude. According to the scientific experts, gratitude means that we notice the good things in our lives and recognize that we can't take all the credit for them. Our culture prides itself on self-reliance and independence, so it can be easy to overlook how others contribute to our successes. Plus, gratitude can get dismissed as touchy-feely, woo-woo, positive thinking. But that's where the science comes in. Work, relationships, health, child-rearing all benefit from embracing gratitude. This is, this is surprising to a lot of people, right? Because we stereotype these generous, caring people who do tend to express a lot of gratitude and receive a lot of gratitude as chumps or doormats. And yet, they also turn out to be some of the most successful people on the planet. People sometimes postulate these, these things, like gratitude or forgiveness or morality, is that they are human innovations. But I think all of them, you, you cannot name one, I think, that is not older than our species. It's a hardwired, ingrained psychological process that says when someone does something good for us, we have to return the favor. Over the next hour, we'll learn how this science can help us enjoy health and happiness. We'll hear some of the amazing scientific breakthroughs that reveal the importance of gratitude, along with personal stories of the benefits and obstacles to feeling truly grateful. We start in San Diego. Shuka Kalantari has this report. Natalie Price is walking to her new job along the Pacific coastline. It's a short five-minute walk from the bus stop but it's a walk she was unable to do just a few years ago. In March of 2013, Price was out of shape. she just lost her job, was going through a divorce, and she and her two kids had to move back into her parents' house. I was so stressed out. Bad situation, just all the way around. I remember going to bed that night, thinking tomorrow when I wake up, I, I'm, gonna have to, I'm going to be stressing all day about how I can't take care of what I need to take care of. Price woke up at 2 a.m. with a pain in her arm. And it turned out that I was having a heart attack. She recovered at the UC San Diego Medical Center. Today, she walks to work almost every day, and it's because of gratitude. Price participated in a UC San Diego study looking at how gratitude affects people with heart health problems. One of the things she did was write journal entries about what she was grateful for that day. Honestly and truthfully, some days I would sit there and look at that piece of paper and say, like, I have nothing to be grateful for. <laughs> I got this, I got that, I got this, I got that, and I don't have this, so I don't have any gratitude. But the exercise got Price thinking about the things that make her happy. 
that study forced me to think about, well, yeah, that's wrong, that's bad, but this isn't that bad. It's like strength training for the heart. Meredith Pung is co-author of the UCSD study. Her team looked at some 200 people who, like Price, were at risk of heart failure. They have some evidence of structural abnormalities that you can see on their heart if you use an echocardiogram. Um, So they're at risk for developing heart failure, but they haven't developed it yet. Pung says people who did gratitude journaling for eight weeks showed signs of a healthier heart afterward. So the heart just needs a break, right? So with grateful contemplation, gratitude journaling, um, that allows for a little break, a physiological break for the heart, um, and allows it to continue its job for as long as we need it. And subjects who didn't do any gratitude journaling didn't show these improvements. And that's a big deal because one out of five people who develop heart failure die within five years of diagnosis. What are we doing? I visited Pung's lab at UCSD to see for myself how the study works. Sensors here are the gray sensors um, that are actually ECG leads. So we're going to look. Pung helps me put on a thick black band with a Bluetooth device attached to it. It's called a bioharness, and it's connected to a computer that monitors my heart rate. Then Pung has me write in a journal for five minutes about what I'm grateful for. Shuka's grateful list. I'm grateful for my son. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for salad, especially with lemons from my yard. I'm grateful for willow trees and warm oceans. I'm grateful for craft ciders. I have written five things I'm grateful for. How's my heart? <laughs> While you're journaling, what what it would end up looking like on the screen when you have improved heart rate variability is boom, 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 all equal distances apart. And that's what we want to see in a healthy individual. The parasympathetic activity is, is putting the brakes on, slowing down the heart rate. Blood analysis from the UCSD study suggests that more grateful patients were at lower risk of heart failure. These patients also reported fewer symptoms of depression, and felt empowered to take care of their heart health. Natalie Price, the heart attack victim, says gratitude journaling got her out of her depression and back on her feet. I joined the gym, it was enjoyable. I started doing more physical activities and I became more um, cognizant of my health and what I ate, I still am. Price's life still isn't easy. She's in the middle of a nasty divorce and still trying to make ends meet. But now when Price gets stressed out, she picks up a paper and pen and writes about the things she can be grateful for in her life. And other studies from UC Davis, Harvard, and the University of Miami indicate gratitude can improve your sleep, your diet, and make you more likely to exercise. So keeping a gratitude journal can make a big difference in your overall well-being. Being grateful isn't always easy. Our brains seem hardwired to zero in on the negative. For our ancestors, hypervigilance was literally life-saving. Early humans scanned their environment to see if there was danger nearby and would snap into action if they detected a threat. Today we know this fight-or-flight reaction can lead to chronic stress, and chronic stress is bad for your body and your brain. But it turns out humans also seem hardwired to be grateful. It may actually be in our DNA, perhaps essential to our survival as a species. 
Shuka reports gratitude's evolutionary roots run deeper than just us homo sapiens. Adrian Mersney is a zoologist at the Oakland Zoo. She takes care of seven chimpanzees. We have three boys and four girls. Uh, two of the girls are a mother-daughter pair. I think your alpha male may have spit on us. It was, it was Karamia. That's her, uh, you're here too early in the morning and I haven't woken up yet. Go away. <laughs> the chimps spit, fight, play, and also show gratitude to each other. For example, one chimpanzee will share her food as a thank you to another for getting groomed earlier that day. The gratitude they show is just so natural and genuine, and it's there, it's ingrained, it's part of their culture and part of the species and how they work as a social group. That means that the mechanism of, of gratitude, or the, let's say the the, the mental uh, calculations that we have uh, when, we, when we're grateful for, for things that we've received from others, that those calculations are very old. Franz DeWall from Emory University in Atlanta is one of the world's leading primatologists. He studies chimpanzees in the wild. You take very careful measures who grooms whom for how long and so on. Uh, and the chimpanzees at that point don't know what's going to happen that day. Uh, but then later in the day, a couple of hours later, we introduce food. Like a couple of watermelons, much more than one chimp could eat alone. They start breaking them apart and, and handing out pieces and letting others reach in and take pieces from them. And then we measure uh, who takes food from whom. In one study, DeWall measured over 7,000 food interactions between chimps. He found they share more food with chimps who'd groom them. DeWall claims that says a lot about the evolution of gratitude. So, so people sometimes postulate these, these things like gratitude or forgiveness or uh, whatever it is. And morality is that they are human innovations and they may be more refined and more sophisticated in our species. That's very well possible. So, so they're more developed maybe, um, but um, they're not brand new. They're not something that we came up with. But maybe what passes for gratitude in chimps is just good old survival skills. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Oakland zookeeper Adrian Mersney says sometimes it's obvious that chimps are doing a favor to win status or power. Oh, totally. It's an ongoing soap opera with chimps of different rankings and usurpings. And <laughs> Emery's friends DeWall says in one study from England, scientists found that chimps held in captivity did favors for other chimps with the foresight that they were about to get into a fight and may need a little extra help. So they're sort of exploiting the gratitude mechanism, which they know exists. They're sort of exploiting it to their advantage. And, and of course, human politicians do this all the time. Business people will give you a beautiful pen to take home, and so you feel grateful for that pen, even though it costs them only maybe $5. But you think you have a beautiful pen, and, and it primes your thinking about these people, and you think more positively about them, and you may be more likely to do business with them in the future. You're listening to The Science of Gratitude, and I'm Susan Sarandon. Extras that a firm does for a customer often generate gratitude, and that gratitude is part of a norm of reciprocity that we all feel. That's Cheryl Burke Jarvis, marketing professor at Illinois State University. It's a hardwired, ingrained psychological process that says when someone does something good for us, we have to return the favor. Jarvis co-authored a study showing that when a company does things like give an extra discount on your birthday or send shoppers elsewhere if they don't have something in stock, 
customers are more likely to come back again. Jarvis points to the movie Miracle on 34th Street. There's this classic 1940s movie called Miracle on 34th Street where the real Kris Kringle, the real Santa, ends up playing Santa in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and is the store Santa. Say thank you, Santa Claus. Thank you. Bye. Merry Christmas. Then a little boy asks Santa for a toy fire engine. Santa says, no problem. And the mother comes up to him later and says, how dare you do that? I can't find that fire engine anywhere. Nobody has it. Macy's doesn't have it. What do you mean by saying a thing like that? I've been all over town trying to find that kind of a fire engine. Macy doesn't have one. Nobody's got one. But you can get those fire engines at the Acme Toy Company on West 46th Street. Only four fifty. Wonderful bargain. Oh, I follow the toy market pretty closely. Macy's sending other people to other stores? Well, the important thing is to keep the children happy. Whether Macy's or somebody else sell the toy, that doesn't matter, does it? Don't you feel that way? Me? Sure, but I didn't think Macy's did. I don't get it. I just don't get it. In the movie, Chris Kringle sends a lot of the Macy's customers to competitors for better deals. And the Macy's managers were appalled. They were shocked. They were terrified. How dare you send our customers to our competitors? Until it works to Macy's benefit. Macy's Santa Claus sending customers to Gimbel's. Preposterous. What? Yet, we cannot quarrel with success. Telephone calls, telegrams, over 500 parents expressing their undying gratitude to Macy's. So as a result, I've decided to make this the new sales policy for the entire store. If we haven't got what a customer wants, we'll send him where he can get it. In this way, Macy's will be known as the store with a heart. The store that puts public service ahead of profits. And consequently, of course, we'll make more profits. It's this, this idea in relationship marketing that you're not that customer's worth more than just that sale. And if you make them happy and you solve their problems, they're gonna come back to you in the future and buy more later. The Illinois State team surveyed over 400 customers at 31 firms and found that businesses that went the extra mile connected more deeply with their clients. The thing that we discovered in our study is that gratitude drives other positive feelings. The customer feels grateful. They also learn to trust that exchange partner, that company. They have greater kind of emotional commitment to the relationship. They're more loyal. And all of those things together drive positive outcomes for the company. But Jarvis and her team also discovered that showing gratitude only works if the customer thinks it's authentic, a finding echoed by other research. And even the salespeople with the highest annual revenue are those who actually care deeply about helping their customers and their colleagues. That's Adam Grant, a professor at Wharton School of Business. He studies gratitude in the workplace. And I think what that suggests is this is this is surprising to a lot of people, right? Because we stereotype these generous, caring people who do tend to express a lot of gratitude and receive a lot of gratitude as chumps or doormats or potentially at risk for burnout. And yet they also turn out to be some of the most successful people on the planet. Tom Gilovich is a psychology professor at Cornell University. Somewhere out there, there are people trying to make uh, money off of this. People are trying to make money off of everything. He says studies looking at gratitude as a marketing tool focus mainly on reciprocal relationships. That is, you do something nice for me that I wasn't expecting. I feel great gratitude. He thinks there's another kind of gratitude. That's the kind of untargeted gratitude that you feel when 
you see an unbelievable sunset and you feel grateful simply to be alive, or you go to Yosemite Valley and you see the grandeur of those mountains, and again, you just feel grateful to be a part of all of this. That's not connected to another person and it tends to produce a kind of feeling of elevation or awe that people find very, very rewarding. It's this untargeted gratitude that spawned our national parks generations ago, a present to us from people who are now long gone. And new research indicates that gratitude may be our key to preserving the planet for future generations. Suki Lewis has this report. Most days, 17-year-old Jairo Hernandez wakes up to sounds like this. Today, he heard this. Earlier today, I saw an osprey skydive towards the river and just snatch a fish. I witnessed that with my own eyes. Hernandez is one of a group of urban kids who spent the summer in Yellowstone, clearing trails, installing bear boxes, and loving it. Everything's fresh, you know. The grass is fresh, the air is fresh, you know. Everything seems so, like, nice, fresh, um, untainted, you know. It's the treasure that the pioneers have left us. They didn't have to do it. There's no reason why people who were alive in the 1910s and 20s had to set aside land for the national parks, right? They could have just developed that land. Ezra Markowitz is a professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. He studies big environmental problems. One of the things that's interesting about these issues is that they are long-term. So we're making decisions today that are going to have their biggest influence on people far in the future. There's a body of research that shows things like reciprocity, fairness, and gratitude motivate us to do nice things for people who've done nice things for us. But Markowitz wanted to find out something different. Can those same feelings help us make better decisions to benefit future generations, people we'll never meet? What we find is that the people who feel the most grateful towards past generations for their environmental actions are the same people who are most willing to put their own money on the table in order to protect these, uh, these environmental wonders for future generations, which I think is really powerful. Markowitz says in order for this kind of pay-it-forward psychology to motivate us, we need to hear the stories, see the parks, understand what there is to be grateful for, which is where someone like Chris Collier comes in. He runs a youth program at Yellowstone called Groundworks, a partnership between the National Park Service and the Environmental Protection Agency that lets urban kids know the national parks are for them too. Because in the old days, if you're a person of color uh, and you went into the woods, uh, it didn't go so well. People would arrest you for vagrancy. You know, there was you could travel across the south to Great Smoky Mountains and enjoy the park, but along the way, you couldn't find a hotel, you couldn't get your car fixed, you couldn't eat in a restaurant. And so, it's our job now is with the new generation is to reach out out of the parks and build those connections, the bridges. And it starts by not just bringing the kids in the parks; it starts by building the parks and the cities. The kids in Collier's program first work in local city parks, doing trash pickups and trail work. And then he brings them out here to Yellowstone. So they see that the work that they're doing is is part of one conservation movement in the United States. Eighty percent of America's population lives in urban areas, and kids are the ones who will make decisions for the future, like Jairo Hernandez from Lawrence, Massachusetts. It's really our generation that actually has to pay it forward. 
we have to make sure that we actually like don't screw up you know we, we have to make sure that we actually do our best we start changing uh how we live be more eco-friendly you know change our lifestyles especially in the urban community that perspective that i have right now it's never never had that when i first started out so are you the next urban leader yes <laughs> yes i am <laughs> or as my uh, biology teacher likes to call it eco-warrior <laughs> <laughs> Does this mean you have to take your kid to Yellowstone to have him experience gratitude? Not quite. You can teach gratitude in the comfort of your own home. Coming up next, some tips from the experts on how to raise grateful children. I think it's important to not just model writing thank you cards and thank you letters, but sharing with them the contents of the letters. I'm Susan Sarandon, and this is the Science of Gratitude from PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome back to the Science of Gratitude from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Susan Sarandon. Scientists around the world are finding one of the keys to happiness is appreciating what we already have. And one thing everyone appreciates is a grateful child. Thank you so much. When children themselves feel authentic gratitude, new research suggests it's not just good for grown-ups. It's good for the kids, too. Kids are starting to understand their own unique emotional experiences better uh, by the time they reach six and seven years of age, as opposed to four and five. So if your four-year-old is being a jerk, like you still have hope? <laughs> There's always hope, <laughs> yes. Shuka Kalantari picks up the story. Here at Boston University, Peter Blake is a psychologist. Parents often say to the kids, what do you say? right? And the kids, thank you. Like, that's the routine. And you even think of that with adults. I mean, we say thank you in a kind of offhand way. And when someone like leans into you and with great sincerity says, thank you, you know it. <laughs> you know that that's, they really meant it. Blake and his team measure gratitude in children by tracking how much kids share after they're given a gift. Laura Nelson is lab manager. We're looking at how the emotion of gratitude influences children's desire to share or pay it forward to another child. She says most studies on gratitude use the desire to share with others, to pay it forward, as a measurement of how grateful someone feels. Two, three, Here's how the Boston University study was done. First, 
A kid comes into a room filled with toys, and the researchers measure her mood using a chart with smiley faces and sad faces. Can you tell me how you feel right now? Do you feel very good, a little good, just so, a little bad? Then the kid is given a gift-wrapped toy. Ooh, you can rip it. Okay. Half the kids are told the gifts were given to them by another child, and the other half are told it's a gift from the lab. Nelson tells seven-year-old Sophie LeBlanc that her gift, a stuffed owl, is from another little girl. Nelson then measures Sophie's mood. I have a question for you. How do you feel right now? Do you feel very good? She feels better because she got a toy. Afterward, Nelson leads Sophie into a room filled with bowls of starburst candies. Sophie is given eight pieces. So Sophie, right now, who do these starbursts belong to? Me. That's right. She can keep all the candy, candy share some with another kid she's never met before, or give it all away. Sophie decides to to give away four pieces and keep four for herself. Nelson measures Sophie's mood again. This time, she's even happier. Very good. Very good? And why do you feel very good? Because I just shared. Because you just shared? Sophie's mom, Kate LeBlanc, is happy her daughter decided to share. It was cool. Like, I didn't know until afterwards what she had decided. And I was happy to see that she had shared. But honestly, if she had kept all eight, I wouldn't have felt like a failure as a parent or questioned her morals. It, you know, they're kids and it's candy. Peter Blake, the study's co-author, says kids six and older are more likely to share their candy when they think a real person, another little kid, gave them a gift. That makes them more grateful. But if the kid thinks the gift came from a faceless lab, they aren't as happy or grateful, and they don't share as much candy. Gratitude is something unique where it gets you beyond the sense of indebtedness and inspires you to pay forward benefits to someone else. Grateful kids are happier and more apt to share. Children who experience real gratitude are less envious of others and more likely to have higher GPAs. That's according to Jeffrey Froh, a psychologist at Hofstra University. He's author of Making Grateful Children and has a few tips on how to raise a child to be thankful, not entitled. Tip number one, watch your language. Grateful people actually speak differently than less grateful people. So when you listen to them, they're more likely to use words like blessing, fortune, fortunate, lucky, abundance and things like that. So by modeling this kind of language for our children, they're more likely to pick that up over time. Tip number two, explain to your child why you're grateful. I think it's important to not just model writing thank you cards and thank you letters, but sharing with them the content of the letters. Let them know who did the kind thing for you, what they did you know, for you, why are you grateful to them. And I think, again, over time, by modeling these behaviors, the children will no doubt pick it up. Tip number three, it's not about stuff. There was a a positive correlation between materialism and depression. So the more materialistic kids were, the more depressed they were. And what's happening is, is that materialism, it's, it's a value system, you know? So it's a, it's a focus on extrinsic goals, things related to wealth, fame, image, and status. And even if we're successful in achieving those pursuits, the bottom line is, it does not fulfill our basic psychological needs of competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And when we don't fulfill those needs, we do end up feeling very depressed. Having good relationships is by far the number one foundation to becoming a grateful person. 
You can find these and many other tips for raising grateful children at our website, gratituderadio.org. So, if materialism is bad for happiness and gratitude, what kind of present should you give a child, especially when the holidays roll around? New studies indicate certain kinds of gifts can make people happier and more grateful. Shuka Kalantari has more. There is a correlation. Now, it's a correlation, so we don't know the direction of causality. Uh, But people who spend more of their money uh, on experiences relative to material goods are more grateful. That's Tom Gilovich, a psychology professor at Cornell. His research shows people who spend money on doing things are more grateful and happier than people who spend money on material stuff. A family vacation lives on in our memories. It helps shape our identity. A new sofa doesn't do that. Furniture, clothing, automobiles, they're things that a person buys uh, to make themselves happier often. uh, And you buy them with the thought that they will stay in your possession for an extended period of time. Whereas an experiential purchase, things like a restaurant meal, going to see a concert or taking a vacation, are things that you buy to advance your well-being or happiness through a fleeting experience. And Gilovich's research shows that sharing stories about things like a family trip, instead of some new tech device, is more likely to create a bond between people. And that's important because a big determinant of happiness and well-being is how socially connected we are. Being disconnected from other people is a risk factor for unhappiness and depression. Gratitude also motivates us to give to others, even strangers. In one of the Cornell studies, Gilovich had a group of people think for 10 minutes about a big experiential purchase they'd made, like a trip to the zoo, while another group thought about an expensive item they'd bought. And then we have them play one of these economic games known as the dictator game. Study participants are given a sum of money and told they can either keep it all, share half with a stranger, or give it all away. And what we find is that if you've just gotten in touch with a significant experiential purchase, you're a more generous person. You give more to this other anonymous stranger than if you've just thought of a material purchase. I'm seven and a half. Next month, I'm going to be eight. Sophie LeBlanc is from Malden, Massachusetts. We heard from her and her mother, Kate, a bit earlier. Like many families, we struggle with the holidays and birthdays in terms of stuff, how much stuff she gets. LeBlanc says it's hard to think of new experiences to buy for her daughter, but it's worth it. Like when she turned seven, we went on a whale watch instead of giving her like presents. And it's awesome. I mean, she still talks about that. That's an investment for sure. I mean, it's not cheap to do that, but it was a great day that we really remember. I'm Susan Sarandon, and this is the Science of Gratitude. Deep gratitude is expressed differently in different places. When Lillian Perez came to the U.S. from Colombia to work as an au pair, she found the tradition of thank you cards quite foreign. I've been living with a family for three years, American family. So it was so funny because when I came here, they always make this 
cards, you know, like this, like, thank you card. So if you got a present, you actually make a card and say like, hey, thank you for the present. That was so nice. I'm so excited. Blah, blah. They even give me a card. And even we lived in the same house. Thank you cards. Real expressions of gratitude or the repayment of a debt? Hmm, it's a tricky question. Reporter Suki Lewis explores the relationship between gratitude and indebtedness. Many hours of my childhood were spent sitting at my little desk in my room writing thank you notes. Back in third grade, Katina Papson got her first stationery, white cardstock with her name embossed in black. When I think about it, it does feel a little bit like it was like torture. Because when you're that little, that's so much work. Funnily enough, though, over time, Papson's thank you note writing became a habit she just couldn't quit. She shows me a list of the notes she still owes. I have these two post-it notes that my daughter's two-year-old birthday party gifts listed on them. And as you can see, I've gotten six done. And that's about maybe a third of what I've got to be doing and her birthday was May 21st. <laughs> Sometimes Papson gets anxious just thinking about the thanks she owes. There's this feeling of a debt unpaid. Historically in the social sciences, um, researchers have just said indebtedness and gratitude is the same thing. And many of us more recently have said, well, wait a minute, these are two very different kinds of things. Phil Watkins, psychology professor at Eastern Washington University, says both feelings are a response to something another person has done for us or given to us, but we experience them very differently. You know, with indebtedness, you know, you do something for the person because you want to get rid of that debt and that's it. With genuine gratitude, we're motivated to give back or to express our gratitude just because it completes the joy of the blessing. It helps us to enjoy what we've been given even more. So he decided to figure out why one person feels grateful while another feels obligated. What we did find is with it increasing um, expectations of the giver, gratitude goes down, but indebtedness goes up. Expectations, those invisible strings that sometimes are attached to a kindness or a gift, they play a huge role in how grateful we feel. But according to Watkins, there are other factors that play into it too, like gender. The debt of gratitude is much uh, heavier for men than it is for women. Watkins says the way men feel gratitude might be related to some cultural baggage they've been carrying around for more than 3,000 years. Aristotle himself did not classify gratitude as one of the virtues. Why? Because the noble man, um, you know, provided for himself. He did not need anything from anybody else. And so to be grateful to someone else was a show of weakness. But Watkins hopes this is starting to change because the reality is no man or woman is an island. The real message here is we're all grateful because we're all dependent on each other. One way people are dependent on each other is through romantic relationships. Janice Kaplan is the former editor-in-chief of Parade Magazine and author of The Gratitude Diaries. For the book, she spent a year being grateful for various things in her life like her husband. He's a good guy, but whoever remembers that after you've been married for very long? Who remembers to thank your spouse for the things that he does every day? And so I spent a month doing that and uh, thanking my husband for driving us when it was late at night or 
fixing the, the leaky faucet. Kaplan's friends didn't quite get it. A couple of them really balked and said, wait a minute, no, my husband should be appreciating me. You know, and they warned me that I was, I was losing the power in my relationship and my husband was turning me into a Stepford wife. So Kaplan called a couple of psychologists to see what they thought about her showing extra gratitude towards her mate. I particularly liked one from the Midwest who said to me, no, 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 that's ridiculous. You have to appreciate each other, and if one person is taking advantage of that, then, you know, then you turn around and give them a kick in the butt. But you have to start from the position where you're each appreciating each other. And I think that's a hard step for a lot of us to do. I think it's hard for a lot of us to say, I'm going to do this first. I'm going to appreciate my spouse first. I'm going to be the one who says thank you first and see what happens from there. And research shows it's worth the effort. Thankfulness, not romance, may be key to a long-term relationship. A study from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill shows grateful couples are more satisfied in their relationships and feel closer to each other. Another study from the University of California, Berkeley, finds that people who feel appreciated by their partners are more likely to be in the same romantic relationship after nine months. The former Parade magazine editor-in-chief, Janice Kaplan, says being actively grateful towards your spouse isn't about losing power. It's about sharing it. At first it was kind of awkward and I felt kind of silly about it, um, but uh, the vibe in our marriage started to change and uh, he started to thank me for things and it really changed how we responded to each other. You're listening to The Science of Gratitude. There's more at gratituderadio.org. I'm Susan Sarandon. Up next, gratitude at school and on the job. When you know, gratitude is solely used as an instrumental tool to try to convince people to work harder or become more committed, people see right through that and it tends to backfire. Coming up on the Science of Gratitude from PRI, Public Radio International. We're back with more of the science of gratitude. I'm Susan Sarandon. Not everyone feels appreciated at work, but when they do, it makes a huge difference. So much so that some businesses are making gratitude a company policy. The 2015 Grand Prize Avengers Award winner is John Hilliard. Laura Clivens reports. In a crowded, boisterous auditorium, John Hilliard walks up to a podium, gives a man a hug, smiles, and puts his hands in his pockets. 
He looks at his flip-flops until the uproar subsides. When the silence comes, it doesn't last long. From out of nowhere, his mother and grandparents step on stage. They're here in New York City as a surprise. And that's not all. John and his family get $50,000 to take a vacation anywhere in the world. Hilliard is not a game show winner. He's an Avenger. If we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn sure we'll avenge it. No, not that kind. That's what his company Next Jump calls him, Avenger. Avenger is the ultimate award for employees, but it's not for increasing profit. It's an award voted on by all the employees who answer the simple question, who helped you succeed the most? And it's an honor that's given to those who sacrifice for others. Charlie Kim is the founder and CEO of NextJump, an e-commerce business with clients like Intel, AARP, and Hilton Hotels. What NextJump's doing is creating a culture of gratitude. Yeah, I think at this point, you would actually be a very bad business leader if you didn't focus on culture, because that would be like the equivalent of not focusing on your most important asset today. If you think about what is the opposite of gratitude, it's entitlement. And think about a culture that's built with entitlement and what tends to happen in terms of its employees. Um, it's all about me, me, me. And before you know it, I would call that an army of brilliant jerks. Versus the opposite we found with gratitude is gratitude we found to be the precursor to humility. You end up seeing um, growth of the company tied directly to the growth of its people in terms of becoming stronger, better human beings. A 2012 survey conducted by the polling firm Penn Schoen Berland looked at North Americans' attitude toward gratitude. It found that people, quote, are less likely to express gratitude at work than any place else. Not at Next Jump. So welcome to our on-site gym facility. Um, as Their New York offices feature healthy snacks, healthy pictures of employees on the wall, and a gym with a spinning room and climbing wall. We want to make the healthiest choice the easiest choice. After NextJump focused on developing a culture of gratitude, annual growth went from 30% to over 100%. Well, gratitude makes business sense because there's a great deal of evidence that employees tend to work harder, smarter, and longer when they know that others appreciate their efforts. Adam Grant is professor at the Wharton School of Business. His studies directly link employee appreciation to greater productivity and success. A single expression of gratitude after you've offered help to somebody increases your likelihood of, of helping that person again from 25% to 55%. Grant also found receiving a simple acknowledgement, regardless of who it's from, more than doubles the chance that you'll help another colleague, even if that person wasn't the one who said thanks in the first place. Grant says when gratitude rises, so does what he calls helping behavior. When employees are willing to help each other out, the data show consistently that organizations do better. It makes your work more meaningful, it strengthens your relationship, and it also boosts employee engagement. Anna Goche worked for years at Lincoln Financial. She was their COO, not chief operations officer, chief optimism officer. In her group at Lincoln Financial, the overall employee engagement is 60%, which is higher than the industry benchmark of 44%. Higher engagement scores absolutely translate to um, high, just higher levels of satisfaction, so people are more productive. Maybe this is just manipulation, using gratitude as a lever. But Adam Grant says employees can tell. Gratitude can be used for evil as well as good. 
And so many times what we see is when, you know, gratitude is solely used as an instrumental tool to try to convince people to work harder or become more committed, that people see right through that and it tends to backfire. Once again, next jumps Charlie Kim. But today in the information age, it's all about the people. And culture is setting up an environment where your greatest assets, the people, are able to get from not only just getting the job done, sort of a survival state, but more to a thriving state. And when you get there, I mean, you're going to get more out of, of less people, to be honest. Increased productivity and people go all in. Gratitude makes employees better workers, and it can also make students better learners. Laura has more. In Oakland, California, Timarian Carson is in 11th grade. It's his fourth high school. The others were... They were pretty big high schools, like at least 1,000 kids. It's like this huge campus, you don't know anyone, so you're kind of like a ghost in the hallways. Carson's grades were low, but now Carson is getting good grades at school number four, a small public school named MetWest High. He says his success is due not just to class size, but to something the school calls appreciations. It was really different, because they definitely take a, a part of our time to like give appreciations and make us give appreciations. At first, I wasn't used to it, so it took a little bit of adjusting. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, so everyone should have in front of you right now. Students a listen to each other's presentations about how they've grown during the school year. When 11th grader Marina finishes up, she shares her appreciations. Oh, and to my teachers, I appreciate my teachers for helping me. <laughs> and then she gets an appreciation from a friend. You have grown a lot as a person and as a student, too. Since the beginning of the year, like, I've seen how you were, and, like, I'm really proud of, like, everything that you have achieved. And keep going with your goals. I know you can stick to it, and you know I'm going to be here to help you. Grateful kids are more satisfied with their family, with their friends, with their school, with their neighborhood, with themselves. Jeffrey Fro is professor of psychology at Hofstra University. They also report more optimism, less depression, less envy, more, you know, higher GPAs. So, I mean, the list just goes on and on. It's like this laundry list of positive outcomes when you have a grateful mindset. In 2014, Fro and his colleagues developed a gratitude curriculum. Students were encouraged to think about nice things others had done for them and the good intentions behind those actions. The researchers found these students experienced significantly more gratitude and positive emotions than students who didn't receive the curriculum. And the effects were long-lasting. Students exposed to the curriculum for just half an hour a week for five weeks reported increased levels of gratitude five months later. To put it simply, it's social crazy glue. So what it does is it solidifies relationships. So it helps to ignite new relationships, but it also strengthens old relationships as well. And with the stress on teachers now, rigorous testing and changing educational standards, Professor Fro says teaching gratitude should not be an add-on. It doesn't have to be an either-or. It doesn't have to be we're going to go hardcore academics or we're going to go hardcore, you know, like positive education. You can blend the two together. One of the ways that I think um, teachers can infuse gratitude in their classrooms is to do it seamlessly. Somehow get it into the very curriculum that they're using. So say you're teaching English or writing, why can't the students write a gratitude letter to someone in the building? At MetWest High School, the gratitude practice had a big impact on T. Marion Carson. He says it made him a grateful person. Because before, 
I wasn't really the help you out kind of guy. I was like, you should call someone else. Hopefully you get that figured out. <laughs> but like here, it's like, yeah, let's, let's, let's figure this out. Like, let's do it. And his classmates have noticed the difference. My birthday appreciations this past year, someone said like, I just appreciate you for being you because you're a great person and you are willing to help people out and you're willing to like go the extra mile. Science is showing that being truly grateful is tied to happiness, health, and success. But it's always easier to feel grateful when things are going well. What about when times are tough? When life gives us the worst it has to offer? Yvette Hassan recently fled Syria. Here's what she's grateful for. Uh, grateful that I um, moved to USA. Grateful that I um, I lived in the war uh, because it's my, my turning point in my life. Grateful that she lived in the war. I am, yeah. You let you see something and uh, express something. And some people, they look at it, it's so, it's a horrible, traumatic, or the horrible things. It is, actually, but also there's another, another side in it. Just make you, like, wake up, maybe and say, wow, can I do this? Can I really change myself and get to the point, keep moving in this life where a lot of things collapse around you that make you more tough, more strong women? Hassan says there are two sides to adversity. There's the hard stuff, and then there's what you learn from the hard stuff. A war, it's the awful things we're gonna happen to any, anyone in any country, destroy everything, but still, they make something different. Maybe we both should wake up and stop fighting. Living through adversity helped Yvette Hassan become more resilient during the Syrian civil war. And for that, she's grateful. But gratitude isn't just fostered by adversity. It's also a good strategy for coping with adversity. Take people with neuromuscular disease, an ailment that affects your ability to control the muscles in your body. Arguably, they have a lot to be ungrateful for. People with this disease participated in a study by Robert Emmons of UC Davis and Michael McCulloch of the University of Miami. Half were assigned to keep a gratitude journal for three weeks. The other half didn't. Their journal group experienced more positive emotion, more optimism, less negative emotion, and they slept better. Gratitude can help us navigate through life. But what about coping with what comes after? Reporter Suki Lewis finds it's even possible to feel grateful in the face of death. 68-year-old Zeke Grader lies back on his bed, blue and white checked shirt tucked into his jeans. Would it be possible to turn off the fan? Okay, okay, yeah, just for a minute. Okay. Just remember to turn it back on again. He looks like he's ready to get up and go to work, except for the tubes running into his nose. I can't turn that off. No. Okay, let's not do that. No. Okay. Well, I've been uh, declining just generally physically because of a, a cancer. They were finding uh, increased spots on my lungs and my liver, so finally, they had suggested, well, you might want to take a look at palliative care. Palliative care, that's code for hospice. And hospice means you're not getting better. 
right now, like I, I, I think about, it's all I think about, is just how lucky I've been. We know we die. And that's a crazy-making uh, plight. And there is a lightness to it. So the, the secret that those of us who work in hospice tend to know is thinking about our death informs the way we live. B.J. Miller is a doctor at UCSF and executive director of the Zen Hospice Center in San Francisco, where he's treating Zeke Grader. Dr. Miller has thought seriously about death. As a sophomore in college, he was playing around on a parked commuter train when a massive jolt of electricity shot through his body. Five days later, Miller woke up in a hospital in crazy pain with burnt black feet and hands. Then Miller felt something push aside his pain. It's like a blush of warmth that makes, in a moment, in a visceral way, I'm just very happy to be alive. I remember very distinctly, because I was in a, a lot of physical pain. In those moments, the pain was lessened. I mean, there was, there was no, and I'm not making this up. Both his legs below the knee and his left arm had to be amputated. In this space of pain and loss, Miller would weep, not for his own situation, but with gratitude for the nurses and staff who cared for him. So there's this group of people that take you every day to the, the tank room, and the tank room is where you get washed, scrubbed, hosed down, and all dead tissue is removed, etc. And it is grim. Because, I mean, you're on this metal table, it's like the dishwasher things overhead, this big hose thing, and there's a group of people who, this is their job. And they're causing me immense pain. Okay, but obviously it's for my own good, obviously, and they made that very clear, and the feelings toward them were immense. Over time, Miller healed, learned to navigate his prosthetics, and continued his medical training. But the gratitude never left. My career choice most certainly is, at least in part, a way to pay back. N not out of, oh crap, I've got this debt I gotta pay off, like community service. Um, you know, put your life towards something that's useful to people other than yourself. As executive director of a hospice, Miller says that while his job isn't always easy, the people he helps to die remind him that life is short and joyful and beautiful. Because, you know, what makes anything precious except that it ends? But maybe we don't need to be dying or have a terrible accident to benefit from this point of view. In a study at Eastern Washington University, psychology professor Phil Watkins asked college kids to imagine their own death in vivid detail. In a nutshell, what we found is that people felt much more grateful following the death reflection exercise. Life itself we have all the time, at least while we're alive, and so we tend to take it for granted and tend not even to notice or appreciate that uh, supreme benefit, what imagining your own death does is remind you, wait a minute, this is a precious gift that I have right now. At the hospice, a poster of Zeke Grader's dog is pasted to the wall beside his bed. He doesn't know how many days he has left. Well, I think for me, gratitude has meant the, the type of life I've been able to live, you know, just having the opportunity, having had, you know, very good family, very good friends, very good spouse, and a good dog, you know, having 
had that opportunity. This just meant so much. As he faces his own death, he's most concerned about his loved ones. And th those are the ones I feel for, and not for myself. I guess the graduates is being able to, to having lived a, a life that meant something. In the end, gratitude is about more than death. It's about feeling that your life has been worth living. That's what we heard from psychologist Jack Kornfield, best-selling author of books like The Wise Heart. Usually when people think back to the good deeds, which is a kind of appreciation and gratitude, they don't think of their resume good deeds. So I went over to, you know, Africa and help with the Ebola epidemic or something like that. When they really reflect, there are the moments when they helped a young child or when they were there to cook for somebody who couldn't take care of themselves or when they offered something simple to another in a gesture. And the moments of goodness often are just the smallest things, but they register in the heart. And it's said that as you prepare for death, this quality of appreciating the good moments of your life and the offerings that you've given and the gratitude for connecting in love with another is the perfect preparation for uh, a peaceful and easy passing of your spirit. Some mysteries of life and death might be beyond the reach of science. And of course, the science of gratitude is still quite young. There's a lot more to discover. But already this research is illuminating a path to health and happiness. It's showing that gratitude isn't a soft, superficial emotion that we can parade out at the holidays and ignore for the rest of the year. Instead, it helps to address some of the biggest challenges confronting us. And it may very well be the essence of a meaningful life. I'm Susan Sarandon, and this has been The Science of Gratitude. The Science of Gratitude is a presentation of BMP Audio and the Greater Good Science Center in association with the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Merci, merci beaucoup. Written and produced by Ben Manila and Shuka Kalantari with Jenny Cataldo. Muchas gracias. Additional production from Jack Kahigan and Matt Kerner. Original reporting by Shuka Kalantari, Suki Lewis, Laura Clivens, and Caitlin Ash. Grazie mille. Music by David Michelle Ruddy. Shukran. Executive producer Jason Marsh. Hey, Special thanks to Dr. Keltner, Hom Wen, Elise Prue, Jeremy Adam Smith, and Emiliana Simon Thomas of the Greater Good Science Center. Dankeschön. Learn more about the center's work at greatergood.berkeley.edu. Thanks also to Kimon Sargent and Christopher Levinick of the John Templeton Foundation. And thanks to a whole bunch of others, including Deirdre English, Joan Dieter, and Ed Wasserman at the UC Berkeley J School. Not to forget Brittany Balbeau, Brian Gibbs, Jeanette Boudreau, Devin Strolovich, Eliza LePay, Max Levinson, Lynn Shalcross, and John Kalish, along with Kathy Merritt, Mark Kausch, and Kathy Twiss from PRI. Major funding for the Science of Gratitude was provided by the John Templeton Foundation. More information is available at our website, gratituderadio.org. I'm Ben Manila. Thank you. Really, thank you for listening. PRI, Public Radio International.